Section 25 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 41 The French Treaty and the Paper Duties, Part 3. The country took it rather coolly on the whole. Lord Palmerston promptly came forward and moved in the House of Commons for a committee to ascertain and report on the practice of each house with regard to the several descriptions of bills imposing or repealing taxes by thus interposing at once he hoped to take the wind out of the sails of a popular agitation which he disliked and would gladly have avoided the committee took two months to consider their report they found by a majority of fourteen a series of resolutions to the effect that the privilege of the house of commons did not extend so far as to make it actually unconstitutional for the lords to reject a bill for the repeal of a tax mr walpole was the chairman of the committee and he drew up the report which cited a considerable number of precedents in support of the view adopted by the majority mr bright who was a member of the committee did not assent to this principle he prepared a draft report of his own in which he contended for the very reasonable view that if the lords might prolong or reimpose a tax by refusing their assent to its repeal when that repeal had been voted by the house of commons the house of commons could not have absolute control over the taxation of the country it seems clear that whatever may have been the technical right of the lords or however precedent may have occasionally appeared to justify the course which they took mr bright was warranted in asserting that the constitution never gave the house of lords any power of reimposing a tax which the commons had repealed the truth is that if the majority of the house of commons in favour of the repeal of the paper duties had been anything considerable the house of lords would never have ventured to interfere there was an impression among many peers that the remission was not much liked even by the majority of those who voted for it gladstone has done it all was the common saying and it was insisted that gladstone had done it only to satisfy mr bright and the manchester radicals not a few of the peers felt convinced that the majority of the house of commons would secretly bless them for their intervention lord palmerston followed up the report of the committee by proposing a series of resolutions which he probably considered equal to the occasion the object of the resolutions was to reaffirm the position of the claims of the house of commons in regard to questions of taxation that at least was the ostensible object the real object was to do something which should leave a way of retreat open to the lords in another session and at the same time make those who clamoured against their intervention believe that the ministry was not indifferent to the rights of the representative chamber the first resolution affirmed that the right of granting aids and supplies to the crown is in the commons alone as an essential part of their constitution and the limitation of all such grants as to the matter manner measure and time is only in them the second resolution declared that although the lords had rejected bills relating to taxation by negativing the whole yet the exercise of such a power had not been frequent 
and was justly regarded by the house of commons with peculiar jealousy as affecting the right of the commons to grant the supplies the third resolution merely laid it down that to guard for the future against an undue exercise of that power by the lords and to secure to the commons their rightful control over taxation and supply the house affirmed its right to impose and remit taxes and to frame bills of supply such resolutions were not likely to satisfy the more impatient among the liberals an appeal was made to the people generally to thunder a national protest against the house of lords but the country did not it must be owned respond very tumultuously to the invitation great public meetings were held in london and the large towns of the north and much anger was expressed at the conduct of the lords the morning star newspaper led the agitation it had recourse to the ingenious device of announcing every day in large letters and in a conspicuous part of its columns that the house of lords had that day imposed so many thousand pounds of taxation on the english people contrary to the fundamental principles of the constitution it divided the whole amount of the reimposed duty by the number of days in the year and thus arrived at the exact sum which it declared to have been each day unconstitutionally imposed on the country this device was copied by the promoters of public meetings and m ten the french author then in this country was amused to see placards borne about in the streets with this portentous announcement mr bright threw his eloquence and his influence into the agitation and mr gladstone expressed himself strongly in favour of its object yet the country did not become greatly excited over the controversy it did not even enter warmly into the question as to the necessity of abolishing the house of lords one indignant writer insisted that if the lords did not give way the english people would turn them out of westminster palace and strew the thames with the wrecks of their painted chamber language such as this sounded oddly out of tune with the temper of the time the general conviction of the country was undoubtedly that the lords were in the wrong that whatever their technical right if they had any they had made a mistake and that it would certainly be necessary to check them if they attempted to repeat it but the feeling also was that there was not the slightest chance of such a mistake being repeated the mere fact that so much stir had been made about it was enough to secure the country against any chance of its passing into a precedent in truth the country could not be induced to feel any fear of persistent unconstitutional action on the part of the house of lords that house is known by every one to hold most of its technical rights on condition of its rarely exercising them when once its action in any particular case has been seriously called into question it may be taken for granted that that action will not be repeated its principal function in the state now is to interpose at some moment of emergency and give the house of commons time to think over some action which seems inconsiderate this is a very important and may be a very useful office at first sight it may appear a little paradoxical to compare the functions of the english house of lords in any way with those of the chief magistrate of the united states and yet 
the delaying power which the president possesses is almost exactly the same as that which our usages even more than our constitution have put at the discretion of the house of lords the president can veto a bill in the first instance but the legislature can afterwards if they will pass the measure in spite of him by a certain majority practically this means that the president can say no to the legislature i think this measure has not been very carefully considered i send it back and invite you to think the matter over again if when you have done so you still desire to pass the measure i can make no further objection this is all that the house of lords can now do and only in exceptional cases will the peers venture to do so much most people knew in eighteen sixty that the interposition of the house of lords only meant the delay of a session and knew too that the controversy which had been raised upon the subject such as it was would be quite enough to keep the peers from carrying the thing too far a course of action which mr gladstone denounced as a gigantic innovation which lord palmerston could not approve which the liberal party generally condemned and which the house of commons made the occasion of a significant warning resolution was not in the least likely to be converted by repetition into an established principle and precedent this was the reason why the country took the whole matter with comparative indifference it was not in the least influenced by the servile arguments with which conservatives and a few feeble liberals employed to make out a constitutional case for the house of lords one orator mr houseman carried his objection to democracy so far as to undertake an elaborate argument to prove that the house of lords had a taxing power coordinate with that of the house of commons it may be imagined to what a depth party feeling had brought some men down when it is stated that this nonsense was applauded by the conservatives in the house of commons luckily for the privileges of the house of lords no serious attention was paid to mr horseman's argument if that indiscreet champion of the authority of the lords could have made out his case if he could have shown that the peers really had a taxing power coordinate with that of the commons there would have been nothing for it but to make new arrangements and withdraw from the hereditary assembly so inappropriate a privilege for it may be surely taken for granted that the people of this country would never endure the idea of being taxed by a legislative body over whose members they had no manner of control the whole controversy has little political importance now perhaps it is most interesting for the evidence it gave that mr gladstone was every day drifting more and more away from the opinions not merely of his old conservative associates but even of his later whig colleagues the position which he took up in this dispute was entirely different from that of lord palmerston he condemned without reserve or mitigation the conduct of the lords and he condemned it on the very grounds which made his words most welcome to the radicals he did not indeed give his support to the course of extreme self-assertion which some radical members recommended to the house of commons but he made it clear that he only disclaimed such measures because he felt convinced that the house of lords would soon come to its senses again 
and would refrain from similar acts of unconstitutional interference in the future the first decided adhesion of mr gladstone to the doctrines of the more advanced liberals is generally regarded as having taken place at a somewhat later period and in relation to a different question it would seem however that the first decisive intimation of the course mr gladstone was thenceforth to tread was his declaration that the constitutional privileges of the representative assembly would not be safe in the hands of the conservative opposition mr gladstone was distinctly regarded during that debate as the advocate of a policy far more energetic than any professed by lord palmerston the promoters of the meetings which had been held to protest against the interference of the lords found full warrant for the course they had taken in mr gladstone's stern protest against the gigantic innovation lord palmerston on the other hand certainly suffered some damage in the eyes of the extreme liberals it became more clear than ever to them that he had no sympathy with any radical movement here at home however he might sympathize with every radical movement on the continent still lord palmerston's resolutions contained in them quite enough to prove to the lords that they had gone a little too far and that they must not attempt anything of the kind again a story used to be told of lord palmerston at that time which would not have been out of character if it had been true some one it was said pressed him to say what he intended to do about the lords and the reimposition of the paper duties i mean to tell them was the alleged reply of lord palmerston that it was a very good joke for once but they must not give it to us again this was really the effect of palmerston's resolutions all very well for once but don't try it again the lords took the hint they did not try it again even in that year eighteen sixty mr gladstone was able to carry his resolution for removing in accordance with the provisions of the french treaty so much of the customs duty on imported paper as exceeded the excise duty on paper made here at home meanwhile the government had sustained a severe humiliation in another way they had had to abandon their reform bill the bill was a moderate and simple scheme of reform it proposed to lower the county franchise to ten pounds and that of the boroughs to six pounds and to make a considerable redistribution of seats twenty-five boroughs returning two members each were to return but one for the future and the representation of several large counties and divisions of counties was to be strengthened kensington and chelsea were to form a borough with two members birkenhead stalybridge and burnley were to have one member each manchester liverpool leeds and birmingham were each to have an additional member the university of london was to have a member it was also proposed that where there were three members to a constituency the third should represent the minority an end to be accomplished by the simple process of allowing each elector to vote for only two of the three the bill was brought in on march first the second reading was moved on march nineteenth mr disraeli condemned the measure then although he did not propose to offer any opposition to it at that stage he made a long and laboured speech in which he talked of the bill as a measure of a medieval character without the inspiration of the feudal system or the genius of the middle ages 
no one knew exactly what this meant, but it was loudly applauded by Mr. Disraeli's followers, and was thought rather fine by some of those who sat on the ministerial side. Mr. Disraeli also condemned it for being too homogeneous in its character, by which he was understood to mean that he considered there was too great a monotony or uniformity in the suffrage it proposed to introduce. Long nights of debate more or less languid followed. Mr. Disraeli, with his usual sagacity, was merely waiting to see how things would go before he committed himself or his party to any decided opposition. He began very soon to see that there was no occasion for him to take any great trouble in the matter. He and his friends had little more to do than look on and smile complacently, while the chances of the bill were being hopelessly undermined by some of the followers of the government. The milder Whigs hated the scheme rather more than the Tories did. It was Lord John Russell's scheme. Russell was faithful to the cause of reform, and he was backed up by the support of Cobden, Bright, and the Manchester and Radical Party in general. But the bill found little favor in the cabinet itself. It was accepted principally as a means of soothing the Radicals and appeasing Lord John Russell. Lord Palmerston was well known to be personally indifferent to its fate. There was good reason to believe that if left to himself, he would never have introduced such a measure, or any measure having the same object. Lord Palmerston was not so foreseeing as Mr. Disraeli. The leader of the opposition knew well enough, even then, that a reform bill of some kind would have to be brought in before long. There's not the least reason to suppose that he ever for a moment fell into Lord Palmerston's mistake, and fancied that the opinions of the clubs, of the respectable Whigs, and of the metropolitan shopkeepers represented the opinions of the English people. Mr. Disraeli probably foresaw even then that it might be convenient to his own party one day to seek for the credit of carrying a radical reform bill. He therefore took care not to express any disapproval of the principles of reform in the debates that took place on the second reading of Lord John Russell's bill. His manner was that of one who looks on scornfully at a bungling attempt to do some piece of work which he could do much better if he had a chance of making the attempt. Call that a reform bill, he seemed to say, that piece of homogeneousness and medievalism, which has neither the genius of feudalism nor the spirit of the Middle Ages, only give me a chance some day of trying my hand again, and then you shall see the genius of the Middle Ages, and the later ages, and feudalism, and all the rest of it, combined to perfection. Meanwhile the bill was drifting and floundering on to destruction. If Lord Palmerston had spoken one determined word in its favor, it could have been easily carried. The conservatives would not have taken on themselves the responsibility of a prolonged resistance. Those of the liberals who secretly detested the measure would not have had the courage to stand up against Lord Palmerston. Their real objection to the proposed reform was that it would have put them to the trouble of a new election, and that they did not like the extreme radicals and the Manchester school but they would have swallowed their objections if they had supposed that Lord Palmerston was determined to pass the bill. Very soon they came to understand, or at least to believe, that Lord Palmerston would be rather pleased than otherwise to see the measure brought into contempt. 
Lord Palmerston took practically no part in the debates. He did actually make a speech at a late period, but as Mr. Disraeli said with admirable effect, it was a speech not so much in support of as about the Reform Bill. Sir George Lewis argued for the bill so coldly and sadly that Sir E. B. Lytton brought down the laughter and cheers of both sides of the House when he described Lewis as having come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The measure was already doomed. It was virtually dead and buried. Notice was given of amendment after amendment, chiefly, or altogether, by professing liberals. The practice of obstructing the progress of the bill by incessant speech-making was introduced and made to work with ominous effect. Some of the more boisterous of the Tories began to treat the whole thing as a good piece of fun. Once an attempt was made to get the House counted out during the progress of the debate. It would be a capital means of reducing the whole discussion to an absurdity, some members thought, if the House could actually be counted out during a debate on the Reform Bill. A bill to remould the whole political constitution of the country, and the House of Commons not caring enough about the subject to contribute forty listeners or even forty patient watchers within the precincts of Westminster Palace. When the attempt to count did not succeed in the ordinary way, it occurred to the genius of some of the Conservatives that the object might be accomplished by a little gentle and not unacceptable violence. A number of stout squires therefore got round the door in the lobby and endeavoured by sheer physical obstruction to prevent zealous members from re-entering the house. It will be easily understood what the temper of the majority was when horseplay of this kind could even be attempted. At length it was evident that the bill could not pass, that the talk which was in preparation must smother it. The moment the bill got into committee there would be amendments on every line of it, and every member could speak as often as he pleased. The session was passing, the financial measures could not be postponed or put aside, the opponents of the Reform Bill open and secret had the government at their mercy. On Monday, June 11th, Lord John Russell announced that the government had made up their minds to withdraw the bill. There was no alternative. Lord Palmerston had rendered to the bill exactly that sort of service which Kemble rendered to the play of Vortigern and Rowena. Kemble laid a peculiar emphasis on the words, and when this solemn mockery is o'er, and glanced at the pit in such a manner as to express only too clearly the contempt he had for the part which he was coerced to play, and the pit turned the piece into ridicule and would have no more of it. If Kemble had approved of the play, they might have put up with it for his sake, but when he gave them leave they simply made sport of it. Lord Palmerston conveyed to his pit his private idea on the subject of the Reform Bill, which he had officially to recommend, and the pit took the hint, and there was an end of the bill. Lord Palmerston became more unpopular than ever with the advanced liberals. He had yielded so far to public alarm as to propose a vote of two millions, the first instalment of a sum of nine millions, to be laid out in fortifying our coast against the emperor of the French. He was accused of gross inconsistency. The statesman who went out of his way to give premature recognition to Louis Napoleon after the coup d'etat, the statesman of the conspiracy bill, was now clamoring for the means to resist a treacherous invasion from his favorite ally. 
yet lord palmerston was not inconsistent he had now brought himself seriously to believe that louis napoleon meditated evil to england and with palmerston right or wrong england was the one supreme consideration to us it seems to have been wrong when he patronized louis napoleon and wrong when he wasted money in measures of superfluous protection against louis napoleon but we do not think the latter palmerston was inconsistent with the former thenceforward it was understood that lord palmerston would have no more of reform this was accepted as a political condition by most of lord palmerston's colleagues even lord john russell accepted the condition and bowed to his leader's determination as george the third's ministers came to bend to his scruples with regard to catholic emancipation there was to be no reform bill while lord palmerston lived End of section twenty five